President Abraham Lincoln once said, The man who represents himself in court has a fool as a client. The man who sought to defend themselves, and it didn't turn out very well for any of these three people. I'll begin with a name which probably very few, if any of you, are familiar with. A man by the name of Keeson Wilkins was standing trial for assault with a deadly weapon. He decided to represent himself, and it didn't take long into the trial for him to discover that he was on very shaky ground. So he faked unconsciousness. He faked a faint. And that didn't impress anybody, especially the judge. Then he feigned a heart attack. And, of course, it was discovered he had no such heart attack. The verdict was rendered 42 years in prison. It didn't turn out so well for this man. Another name, which probably is more familiar to you, Heather Mills McCartney, the former wife of, yes, Paul McCartney, suing him for divorce. She stood on the steps of London's High Court and declared, I am the power of one. And she said that because she was going to represent herself in that lawsuit against her husband. She went into the courtroom and soon discovered that her experience and knowledge weren't up to the task of a successful defense of her case. She got so angry at McCartney's lawyer that she took a pitcher of water and poured it over the attorney right there in the London courtroom. Well, in her foolishness, she missed out on millions of pounds because she just didn't know the law and she couldn't do a good job of defending herself. The last is a person whom you know perhaps by his nickname. He was the underwear bomber. Do you remember, it will be eight years ago this coming Christmas, when a man sought to board a Northwest Airlines flight from Amsterdam to Detroit. And fortunately, when he was being checked out for any suspicious items on his person as he was going in, it was discovered that he had explosives in his underwear. He, of course, sat in a courtroom And was tried here in the United States. He was tried. But during the trial, he sought to defend himself as well. And he yelled at the jury. He yelled at the judge. And finally, he propped his feet up on the table behind which he was sitting when he was sitting down. And he said, I'm guilty. The result was four life sentences plus 50 years. I'm not sure how that works with one man. But Umar... Abu Mutada didn't do well either. Well, Jesus knew what Lincoln knew before Lincoln knew it. That it is a foolish thing to represent yourself in a court of law. In the book of John, chapter 5, perhaps you have kept your place there. It's been many, many weeks since we looked at the Gospel of John, and now we're returning to the Gospel of John, in order to get the setting, I want to read, beginning with the first verse of chapter 5, and listen carefully. Put yourself inside this story. 
It's not a made-up story. It's the reporting of events that occurred in Jerusalem at the Pool of Bethesda. Jesus had gone there. And instead of going to where a feast was taking place, remember it's uncertain which one of the feasts was being celebrated. But nevertheless, Jesus, instead of going to where the people were thronging, that would be to the temple, He made His way to the Pool of Bethesda. The Pool of Bethesda was the place that crippled people, lame people, sick people would go or have others take them so that when an angel would stir the waters, the thought was the first person in the waters would be healed immediately. And so, as he made his way there, he looked at all these ailing people. That's the background. Let's begin with verse 5. A certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was a Sabbath on that day. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And you know that equates to blasphemy, which was punishable by stoning to death. Look at But the scripture says then in verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. When the Gospel writer John introduces verse 19 and he says, Jesus therefore answered and was saying, to these detractors, these enemies of his. The word translated answered is a word which was borrowed from the courtroom. And it spoke of someone giving a defense to those who were accusing that individual in a courtroom. Now, let's go to our text this morning. And notice the witnesses for the defense in this trial of Jesus. 
Jesus says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness to myself, my testimony is not true. That's almost impossible to believe. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, my testimony needs corroboration. It needs support from others. My testimony about myself alone will not stand the test of credibility. Now, that's hard to imagine because who is Jesus? Jesus is God become man. That is the message of the book of John in large measure. And we know from the things which we're going to see later in the Gospel of John, beginning next Sunday, in John chapter 6, in the sixth chapter, Jesus makes those, the first of several pronouncements by introducing himself in this way, I am the bread of life. And then, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am, I am, I am. And with each declaration, Jesus was letting those who heard Him say those words that He is indeed God in the flesh. But Jesus says in verse 19, we read it, and then if you would like to take a look at verse 30, let's go back to verse 30 for just a moment. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Imagine this. Here is God in the flesh, and He cannot do anything on His own initiative. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the book of Philippians. In the second chapter of the book of Philippians, Paul says, Let this attitude, this mindset... Be in you that is also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. The word translated made nothing is a word which which literally means he poured himself out. That has led some liberal scholars of the New Testament to say that Jesus emptied himself of his deity when he became human. Nothing of the sort. When the scripture speaks of his not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, it's a picture of how he chose to submit himself to the authority of God the Father when he became human. And he would do nothing except what he heard the Father tell him to do, nor would he do anything except he saw the Father doing. Jesus is God. But in his humanity, we see the fact that as high a picture, there's no higher picture of humanity than is drawn for us than the person of Jesus Christ. But his witness alone was not enough. Look again at verse 31. Let me interpret a little bit before we go on in the text. He actually is saying, I myself bear witness of myself. My testimony is not true. It's true in the sense that it's not filled with any error. There's no deceit in it. But it's not true in the sense, and some of your translations may reflect this, it's not valid in 
the court of human opinion. It's not valid even in the court of God because it's only the human testimony of Jesus. Now, let's go on and see what he goes to say here in the next verse. And in this verse, we see that the Father is seconding the witness of Jesus. And we're going to see how he does that. There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the testimony which he bears of me is true. There's a certain amount of mystery associated with the identity of who this other person is. Who is the another? Well, as we read through the text, it becomes rather clear. It's God the Father. Another. There are two words which are translated in our English Bibles into the word another. Two words in the New Testament which translate into our English word another. One is the word heteros, which means another of a different kind. The other word is alas, which means another of the same kind. And the word which Jesus uses here in reference to this other witness is the word alas, another of the same kind. And he's referring to God the Father, probably, however, in a secondary way, even an equal way, he's referring to the Holy Spirit of God. Hold your place here and turn to John chapter 14, where we hear Jesus using the same word, which is translated by our English word, another, meaning another of the same kind, in reference to the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 16 of John 14. And I will ask the Father, He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth. So, Jesus' testimony is not valid. He needs a second witness to support His testimony about who He is and what He has come to do. To verify that He is indeed God become man. He needs that second witness. And who might that witness be? Well, it's the Father who responds in the request of Jesus to send another helper to be with His people, including you and me, forever. And that other individual is the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. Now, turn the page to John fifteen twenty-six. And the Scripture says, when the Helper comes... Now, who is the Helper? He's the Holy Spirit. When He comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. So, who is this second witness that validates the deity and humanity of Christ mixed into one person, fully God, fully man, the Savior of the world. Well, it's God the Father who sends the Holy Spirit at the request of Jesus the Son. We have a beautiful picture here of the way in which each member of the Godhead works together in this whole matter of redemption. Do we not? And so... Jesus is the focus of this witness. God the Father is Christ-centered. Holy Spirit is also Christ-centered. Have you noticed, as you've read your Gospels, how much 
the Father loves Jesus. He says on more than one occasion, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He is full of gratitude and love for His Son. His Son is special to Him. God the Father is Christ-centered. Just like some of us are, are, have our children as our center many times in the way we think about them. And of course, the Holy Spirit is definitely Christ-centered. And by the way, Jesus is God-centered, isn't He? He's Father-centered. How do we know that? Well, He said, we've seen it already in verse 19, He can't do anything except what He hears the Father saying in verse 30. He doesn't take any initiative without the impetus of the will of God being spoken to Him by the Father. He does what the Father does, and He says what the Father says. So, we see that the Holy Spirit is the specialist in witnessing, and the Father has sent the Spirit for that person. When Jesus Christ gives His self-witness, it's always accompanied by the Spirit's witness. Now, let's move from the realm of the theoretical to the realm of the practical here. And when I say theoretical, this is not just somebody's idea. It's the truth. But let's take it out of the academic or ivory tower setting and see how does this relate to us as people who know the Lord and follow the Lord. How does this work when we find ourselves in a position to witness? This is exactly how it works. Jesus has the Spirit everywhere He goes validating His witness. And we have been called to be witnesses. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus, prior to ascending into heaven makes that well-known statement. It's actually a command that they should wait until the Holy Spirit comes to them in Jerusalem. And then he says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. We have been called to be witnesses The commission of Christ to us is that we make disciples. And this is one of the most frightening commissions anyone could ever receive. It is a great commission. We call it that, do we not? And it's great for many reasons, one of which is we get to participate with none other than Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to spread the gospel. And there's power in the gospel. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So, when we sense fear, anybody here ever sense some fear welling up inside of you? Even at the mention of the fact that you are to be a witness, it kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies even thinking about it. But have you ever been in a moment where your mouth got real dry, you got a lump in your throat, your hands got sweaty or cold depending upon how your body reacts to stress, and you're just sort of wondering, how am I going to do this? Well, look, you're not on your own, ever on your own. If you are walking in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who is giving you the power to bear witness. It's awesome. And it's important. That's important to understand. I like Bill Bright, the founder of Camps Crusade's definition 
of effective witnessing. He said effective witnessing is bearing witness to Christ in the power that means independence upon the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. We are witnesses. We're just telling people what we have seen, what we have heard. We're telling them the truth about the person of Jesus Christ. And then, lo and behold, the Spirit comes in and He validates our witness just as surely as He validated the witness of Jesus when He walked on the face of the earth. Well, let's move on. He goes on, Jesus does, to talk about John the Baptist. Seems odd. He gives one verse to himself about his witness. He gives one verse to the Father and the Spirit, just one to them together. But he gives three verses to John the Baptist. And we're going to see as we work our way through the next three verses, he actually demotes John the Baptist. But then at the end, he promotes John the Baptist. Now, let's think about what Jesus says about John the Baptist elsewhere. He says, of men born of woman, none is greater than John the Baptist. No higher recommendation has ever been given to any other human being than that which Jesus gave to John the Baptist. Yet, look what he says about John here in verse 33. You have sent to John these very people who were putting Jesus on trial. Not a formal trial, but it was like a trial. They had sent to John. How do we know that? Have we learned about that in the book of John? Is there anything in the book of John that would indicate that actually happened? In the first chapter, it actually is described. That the Pharisees came, sent some people from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And after several questions are asked and answered, John the Baptist finalizes it by saying, I am not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. And so, Jesus is saying here, you sent for him, and you questioned him indirectly, and he has borne witness to the truth. He's talking about himself. I am the truth, is what Jesus says, of course. In verse 34, but the witness which I receive is not from man. He's saying, look, my own witness is invalid if it stands alone. In my humanity, it's invalid. It's, it's just not going to cut it in a court of law. But perhaps John the Baptist's witness would be valid, we might say. Because John was a man who came from God. He came for a witness that all might believe through him and be saved. That's why John the Baptist came. But he says, not even this witness from this superior specimen of mankind known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist was still a man like Jesus in the sense that he was a human being. So he kind of demotes John the Baptist a little bit. But then he promotes him in the last part of verse 34. But I say these things that you may be saved. In other words, people were saved from their sins through the ministry of John the Baptist. How did that happen? Well, the same way it happens through Jesus when he walks in his ministry on earth. Same way it happens through you and me when we trust Christ and obey Christ and the Spirit of God fills us and he speaks to others through us. And lo and behold, some people get saved. It's amazing, isn't it? People got saved through John the Baptist, didn't they? 
Certainly they did. But remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the womb. I can't explain that. But from the womb, he was filled with the Spirit. And it was the Spirit working through John the Baptist. Verse 35 says, he was the lamp that was burning. And this word translated burning really means igniting. I mean, he was like a man on fire. Some of you saw the movie Man on Fire. Well, that dude didn't compare to John the Baptist. He was igniting and he was shining. He was a lamp. The word translated shining would suggest a lamp, a burning lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And his light, remember, was a referred light. It was the light of Christ shining through him and shining on others. So, John's... Witness is true, but not a validating witness. Why? Because in his humanity, if he didn't trust the Spirit, his witness would not work. All human witness, listen, all human witness, even the highest human witness, Jesus and John the Baptist, all needs the stamp of God's validation. It is the stamp of the Holy Spirit working through us. And I don't mean to make the whole notion of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in our lives, especially in this area of witnessing, too mysterious, although there is a mystery to it, that God would come and live in you and me. He would make His dwelling place in us. We would become the temple individually, of the Holy Spirit, and collectively. 1 Corinthians 6.19 talks about the individual. 1 Corinthians 3.16 talks about the body of Christ. The Spirit comes. That is mysterious. But it's something that is perhaps more practical than anything else for you and me in living the Christian life. Because if we're not indwelled by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, that means controlled by the Spirit, we cannot accomplish what God has put us on earth to accomplish. Well, let's read verse 36 now. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So, the Father is the one who validates the witness of Jesus through the works which He gave Jesus to do. And where did the idea for these works come from? Where did they come from? They came from the Father. Jesus saw what the Father did, and then He acted in agreement with the Father's will. Now think about us. Let's apply this to us for a moment. Can we see what the Father is doing? Can we see what Jesus is doing? Jesus says later in the book of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. Are we just walking around in a fog as it relates to what Jesus says and therefore what we should say and does, therefore we're to do? Are we just like blind men and women walking around? No. We have a clear picture of who Jesus is, do we not? In the Scripture. Look at the Word of God. Look at the Gospels. The next time you read through the Gospels, read it with this in mind. Lord, show me 
what you did and what you consequently are still doing. Because you're the same today as you were yesterday, you'll be the same tomorrow as you were today. Lord, show me. And it's there. And we are to imitate Christ, is what the Bible says. We are to watch Him, and we are to do what He has done. We're to follow Him. That's the call to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father's superior witness to Jesus is in the works which He gave Jesus to do. So, we're grateful for the witness of the Father. Here's the last witness of the Father. It's His special witness to Jesus through the Scriptures. Verses 37 through 40. And the Father who sent me, He has borne witness of me. Remember, how did He bear witness of Him? How does He bear witness of Him? And earlier when He says, He bears witness of me, in verse 32 He says it two times. Each time, it's a present tense verb, which means He keeps on bearing witness. Jesus Christ is having witness born to Him now in this place by the Spirit of God. As we look at the Word of God, God has given us His Word, and the Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the Bible through people, and He's also the one who explains the Bible to us. And the Bible is God's way of communicating who He is, namely who Jesus is, and if we've seen Jesus, who have we seen? We have seen the Father. So, in verse 37, looking again, I'm going to... Read this again. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His form. Now let me stop here just a moment. Had anyone in times past heard the voice of God? Well, I'll just choose Moses as an example. We don't need to go there. But it's clear Moses heard the voice of God. He's not the only one. He heard the voice. Elijah was another one who heard the voice. Had anyone seen the form? The Bible says no man has seen God at any time. Had anyone seen God? Well, Jacob wrestled with God. It was dark. He probably could see the outline of this form. He wrestled with the angel of the Lord, probably a Christophany. That means a pre-incarnate visit of Christ. And he wrestled on the shore of the river Jabbok. And, of course, No man or no woman who wrestles with God ever wins. It's foolish, isn't it? But all of us have done it, probably. But we always lose, but it's the great loss. In losing, we win. It's the only way we win. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel, he shall save it. That's what Jesus says, and it's so true. Verse 38, And you do not... Have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe Him whom He sent. In other words, you don't believe me. Listen to this. If you and I have believed the Father's witness by the Spirit to the person of Jesus Christ, that He is the only begotten Son of God, and whoever believes in Him in the sense of entrusting oneself lock, stock, and barrel... Trusting, if you and I have trusted ourselves to Jesus, the result is that His Word abides in us now. He lives in us, and His truth is in us. We have the mind of Christ. 
Verse 39 says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And by the way, this verb form in in translated you search is identical to the imperative mood. That means a command. It could be translated, search the scriptures. Jesus was getting on their case, perhaps. Search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Life is found in Jesus alone. Do you have eternal life? Do you have what Jesus describes as the abundant life later in the book of John? Do you have a life that's not upset and unsettled by the troubles which surround you? A life that can be a steady life because it's not your life, actually. It's His life in you. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what enables us to not crater in this life. Here was the life. Here was the truth embodied in Christ right under the noses of Israel's leaders. Right before their eyes, He was there. And they were missing it. Why? Because the Spirit of God had not opened their eyes. Jesus had not opened their eyes. And He does not open everyone's eyes to who He is. He actually closes some people's eyes. Don't ask me why, but it's what Jesus Himself says. And it's what the Scriptures tell us in other places. But for those of us who have had our eyes open to who Jesus Christ is, He is fully human. He is fully God. He is our Savior. He is the only way to know the Father. It's through Jesus. What a huge blessing. We have great things to be grateful for today and every day, not just at Thanksgiving, but every day should be Thanksgiving for us for the revelation of God to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God gives us the Holy Scriptures. You have not seen Jesus in the flesh, nor have I. But we have seen Him. And in the Gospel of John, late in the Gospel, there is another beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen Me and still believe in Me. That's us. We are blessed immensely by the revelation of God to us, by the Spirit of God in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As an aside, very quickly, there are two ways to read the Bible. The right way is to know that the Bible, all of it, and when he says you search the Scriptures that testify about me, he was talking about what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, The Hebrew Scriptures testify to the person of Jesus Christ. And the focus of our studying the Word of God is not to accumulate a lot of fascinating facts. It is rather to mine the Word of God like a prospector is mining some ground in hopes that that ground will turn up some precious metal or precious gem. And the thing we're mining for is the person of Jesus Christ. When you and I come to the Bible, we're mining for a deeper understanding of Jesus and a deeper affection for Him. And we want to see who He is, watch what He's doing, have ears to hear what He would say to us, and do what He says.
And in so doing, we experience the abundant life. A life that's a fruitful life. The wrong way is to read the Bible for religious knowledge. To show it off. How much you know. How much I know. To be one up on somebody else, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever. It is true. Well, the big lesson for us is that effective witness to Christ is Spirit-empowered, divinely appointed. It's not beyond the realm of probability that this week God's going to give you a divine appointment to represent Jesus to someone else. He'll do it. And the thing that will make that encounter extraordinary will be you're depending upon the Holy Spirit to speak through you. You may not know what you're going to say. You may not know how to say it. But if you will trust the Spirit of God, God will use you to speak truth into that person's life. In Matthew 10, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Don't worry. He's talking about when... His followers would come before the court. Don't worry what you'll say when you have to stand before the court. The Holy Spirit of my Father will give you the words to say in that moment. And you can be preaching the truth of the gospel and it fall flat. Because you're not depending on the Holy Spirit. I've done that way too many times. I've had a lot of opportunities. I've got a lot to answer for in that regard. I know how to share the gospel. I can do EE. I can do the bridge. I can do Camps Crusades for spiritual law. I mean, I can do a lot of things. Many times I've done different things, and I didn't get very far into it, and I knew, man, this is going nowhere. And I had to evaluate, and what I've discovered is many times it's been because I'm depending on me. I'm not depending on the Lord to do it. But the Lord will use you in some of the most unusual places Aiden, I think you were with me in Mombasa in 2011, was it? We were there in 2011, and we were ministering to probably about 200 pastors there, trying to teach them some things the Lord had taught us about disciple-making. And we had, the last day we were there, we had the opportunity to go for a little leisurely activity. We went to a resort. We weren't staying in a resort, but we went to a resort. We had privileges to use their beachfront. And so we went in the pool. It was great. And then we went out to the beach, the Indian Ocean. And it's a hot ocean. I thought I was stepping into a hot tub when I got into the surf. It's incredibly hot. And two of the guys who were with us, Danny Aredia and Marcus Soto, had made commitments to Jesus, but they'd never been baptized. And they asked me, they said, Pastor, would you baptize us in the ocean today? I said, I will. So our little group gathered around. We walked out probably a hundred yards because the tide was out. We walked out to get to a place where it was deep enough to baptize. And we had this beautiful experience of baptizing those brothers in Christ. It was awesome. As we walked back and we got to shore, we noticed there was a group of people who had gathered to watch. And this is one of the purposes of being baptized, by the way. It's to witness to what Christ has done in your life. And the people were there, and 
I decided to try to witness to them. And I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, I'm a little reluctant. You know that. I'm, I'm, I tend to be reluctant as a witness sometimes. So please overcome my reluctance and speak through me. And there was a camel there which was for riding. Now, I didn't mount the camel. I'd had one bad experience in another nation, Egypt to be precise, where I got on a camel and a guy led me like a hundred yards away from the group I was with and he wouldn't let me down until I gave him $20. It was unbelievable. <laughs> but this was not the case. And so I used that camel who was kneeling there, used his saddle, I put my Bible on it, and I just began to share the gospel. And there were two young men in particular. One had withered legs. His name is Jackson. The other one was his friend. Lucky was his name. Obviously a nickname. We think it was a nickname. And really, Jackson, even though he was disabled, he was obviously the leader. And when I finished, I could tell those two young men were especially listening. And I said to them, does this make sense to you? They said, yes, it does. They were in their early 20s. I said, would you like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And they said, yes, we would. And they prayed to receive Christ. Then they said, would you come back tomorrow and baptize us in the ocean like you did those other guys? And I said, yes. And Murray Van Gundy and I came back. Murray, many of you know Murray. He was a pastor here at the time, and it was a real privilege to do this baptizing with Murray, because he's my spiritual son as well. And so we got together and we took these men, it was a very poignant moment when this little crippled guy wanted to be baptized. And when we got there, we weren't sure they would be there. Little faith we had, oh, little faith we had. But when we got there, they had spread a blanket out under some palm trees, and they were waiting for us when we arrived. And we sat down, we did some follow-up with them, gave them Bibles, and then we took them out in the surf. It's just amazing. And they were baptized as believers. It was because of the Spirit of God. I remember, I had a reluctance even to talk about the Lord. That's a shame for me to say, but I'm telling you the truth. I was tired after a hard work week with teaching and all that, and I kind of just want to go home and be alone for a little while. But I trusted the Lord, and the Lord used me in that way. Now, for every one of those, I've got about a hundred that didn't turn out like that. So don't get any wrong ideas. But the point is, the Holy Spirit will go before you and me. He always does and bears the primary witness And then we follow up and we are the confirming witness after Him. This is what Christ has called us to be. You shall be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In El Paso and the borderland, And whatever your Samaria is, a place you would not want to go, could be in your neighborhood and to the remotest parts of the earth. El Paso, 
Kenya, and points in between. That's where the Lord wants you and me to be his witnesses. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, that you are alive, you are well, you change people's lives. We pray this morning for Jackson and Lucky. I know that Jackson has continued these seven years or so to follow you based on testimony from those I know there in Mombasa. Thank you for him, Lord. Use him. Make him a great witness for you on the beach as he carries out his business there. We love you, Lord. We ask you to be glorified in us individually and as a church as we teach others the good news of Jesus having, first of all, demonstrated it in a life set apart for your honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.